Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Go to Primalosophy.com for one-on-one wellness coaching. My guest today is Robert Whitaker. He's a journalist and author of two books about the history of psychiatry, Mad in America, and Anatomy of an Epidemic. In this episode, we learn about the failure of our current paradigm of drug-centered care for psychiatric disorders. We talk about diet and exercise as antidepressants and changing the mental health paradigm one mind at a time. The work Robert is doing is really powerful and eye-opening, so I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And as always, if you want to support the show, you can do so by clicking subscribe, clicking some stars, and sharing with your friends. Enjoy. I was a newspaper journalist for a long time, and then I wrote for magazines a bit. And then about 20 years ago, I started writing books. And in particular, I've written three books related to um, the history of psychiatry and the way and, 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 and really whether how we got our, cur- our current sort of psychiatric beliefs, our widespread use of psychiatric drugs, and whether that uh, paradigm of care and that widespread use of drugs is, is really doing well for us as a society. So the best way to understand it is this, is there, there is a conventional narrative out there about both the history of psychiatry and the, the merits of modern psychiatry. And my books uh, really tell a, a counter narrative, so to speak. And then I, since 2012, I've run a website called madinamerica.com. It's really a journalistic type enterprise devoted to um, critiquing the conventional narrative and also exploring alternatives to it. So Mad in America should be mandatory reading on the history of psychiatry in America. It's heavy and obviously dark at times, but very eye-opening. And it goes without saying, from the early days of barbaric phlebotomies or so-called surgeries of the soul to antipsychotic medications, we are mistreating the mentally ill. Yeah, here's the thing. Um, the conventional history of psychiatry goes like this. Although there were the dark old days, and then in 1955, the first antipsychotic arrives in asylum medicine. And think of that word, antipsychotic, as if it's an antidote to psychosis. And then in the conventional narrative, is this, this represents a great advance in care. It makes even the seriously mentally ill able to live in the community and do well. And what you see in the book, Mad in America, is that this arrival of the antipsychotics, rather than being a great break with the past, actually continues with a lot of the same sort of values in place. And and antipsychotics, for example, when they were first introduced, were seen as as providing a chemical lobotomy. So we had surgical lobotomy just before that, where they would destroy their frontal lobes, and that was seen as a good therapy for those who are seen as seriously mentally ill. Antipsychotics were seen as doing the same thing, but chemically. And anyway, if you go forward, uh, with say even outcomes for schizophrenia patients since 1955, they're actually now worse today than they were in the first third of the 20th century. So really, that's part of the counter narrative. The, the conventional narrative is the story of great progress, where we get drugs that are antidotes to known diseases. And yet, when you dig into the literature, you find that outcomes are getting worse for uh, psychiatric disorders, and that these drugs do not fix any known pathology. And I want to get into that literature a little bit later on. But in the book, we learn that America's scientific elite, backed by the U.S. Supreme Court, 
advocated policies that resulted in the mentally ill being prohibited from marrying, forcibly committed to state hospitals and sterilized against their will. Now, did society have a role in this as well, maybe unknowingly? Well, <laughs> it may be more than knowingly. What you're talking about is the eugenics era in the United States. And we usually associate eugenics with Nazi Germany, frankly, because the whole point of, of, of you know, the, what led to the Holocaust was the idea that, that Jews had, uh, you know, bad genes. And as a result, they were a threat to the, the sort of gene pool of the non-Jewish population of Germany, the Aryan population. Well, so we associate eugenics with Nazi Germany, but if you really look at where, what country did first started uh, establishing political uh, laws and political policies based on eugenic ideas, it was in the United States. So for example, and eugenics begins to take hold as a philosophy or as an, an idea in the late uh, 1800s. And shortly after it does, we have states in the United States that, as you said, prevent, quote, the mentally ill from marrying. And then the idea is, oh, you have to put them in mental hospitals, quote, the mentally ill, in order to prevent them from breeding. In other words, from being out in society and marrying and having kids. And it was while we had those ideas about the mentally ill that in essence, quote, the mentally ill, that they were a threat to the well-being of society. You know, first, we, we, the argument is you need, to, you need to keep them from marrying. Then the argument is, you need to put them in mental hospitals and keep them out of general society. And then the idea becomes you need to forcibly sterilize them to prevent uh, them from passing on their genes. And finally, it was when we had this conception of societal conception of the mentally ill, that they were a threat to our well-being, a threat to our gene pool, that you got some very aggressive medical therapies introduced or somatic therapies introduced in the 1930s and 1940s, including surgical lobotomy. Now, what is surgical lobotomy? It's where you go in and you destroy the frontal lobes of the brain. And the frontal lobes, if I had an ape brain in one hand and a human brain in the other, they'd look almost exactly alike except for one thing. You'd see pronounced frontal lobes in the human brain. Mm -hmm. So literally, surgical lobotomy destroys the part of the brain that really separates us from from uh, apes. And when this was done, the idea was, <clears throat> okay, we may be knocking the mentally ill down to a lower level of being, but that's still better than, you know, being an insane person. And it made them more sort of um, easier to manage. So you see here at this, this horrible time, under the influence, societal influence of, of eugenics, we did horrible things to those we called mentally ill. We sterilized them, we kept them in mental institutions, and finally we, we, we used medical therapies that were designed to make them quieter, more disinterested, and we did this even though we were taking away the very part of the brain that is understood to make us human. Wow, it sounds like one horrible idea after another. Now, before we get going any further, I, I keep hearing you say, quote, mentally ill. Is there a proper term that you like to use? Because obviously mad and insane are obviously not choice terms. Well, you know, so we use um, the term mentally ill today. And when we use that term, it's, it, it, it conveys in general sort of discussion that there's this line between the people who are, quote, mentally ill, they have some sort of disease of the brain. And then, there's, and then on the other side of the line is the normal population. 
Well, that line doesn't exist in science. Okay. You know, in other words, or whether it be depression, psychosis, and other disturbances of the mind, all these things happen on a spectrum. And, you know, at the far end of that spectrum, you may have some really disturbed people. But where do you draw the line between people we're going to call mentally ill and those we're going to call normal? There is no easy line. And then the other thing that's really important to remember when we're talking about uh, designating certain people as mentally ill or what, whatever you want to call it, uh, having schizophrenia, et cetera, is those diagnoses have always reflected well, they've been more, more regularly applied, if we go back to the eugenics era, to immigrants. They've been more regular, schizophrenia is a term more regularly applied to uh, especially black males. So there's, there's social elements in, in who we decide is mentally ill. And so that's why, I, you know, the quotes around it, it's, it's seen as a scientific term. That's how it's understood today, that people have a disease of the brain. But there is nothing in the scientific literature that allows us to say, oh, this person has a disease of the brain and this person does not, because the pathology of a psychiatric disorders just isn't known. So that's why I you know, say it in this way, to understand that psychiatric diagnoses, and I'm not saying people can't be disturbed, can't suffer in their minds, but the diagnostic boundaries reflect social constructs as well. As I do this, I don't want to pretend that people aren't disturbed, right. people don't suffer from depression, or that people don't suffer from manic episodes. I'm just saying that uh, <laughs> there's no clear line between normal and abnormalcy. It, it, it has varied over time. Yeah, I think that's, that's well put. So do we know the first reported case of these symptoms or, or of mental illness or schizophrenia? Well, you know, insanity's always been around. I mean, is that true? Has it always been around? I mean, is yeah, this? All, you know, you go back and you go way back. There's a sense. Go back to Greek literature and all, and then you know, in the Middle Ages, there's always talk about quote the crazy people, uh, people who hear voices. Now, the societal reaction to those people may be very different over time, but there's always been the sense that uh, a, a certain people are sort of divorced from reality or seeing things that others aren't or hearing things that other aren't. And, and then the question is how society responds to such people. Because mm -hmm. they can respond very differently in certain sort of indigenous cultures. You might have the same people who are hearing voices or seeing things seen as, you know, shamans, that sort of thing. Um, and then if you go back to the colonial days in the United States, it was a term often, um, applied to people who were nuisance, nuisances in society, maybe they were homeless, that sort of thing. And then finally, there are physical uh, problems that lead people to be, quote, insane. I, but that I mean, you know, mercury poisoning, there's various toxins, there's various diseases, uh, diet deficiencies, that sort of thing that can really take their toll emotionally. Right, there are disturbances. Yeah, that can lead to disturbances. So there are physical things that can cause this. There are social things that can cause this. There's a mix of things that can cause this. And then societies generally have different responses to those they call, quote, mad. You know, for example, just think of hearing voices. I mean, a lot of people that hear voices like to hear their voices and, you know, even get along fine in society. We don't say that hearing voices necessarily is an illness unless it 
starts to cause dysfunction. Yeah, we never called Socrates a psycho when his big thing was the fact that he heard some inner voice or inner guidance from an early age. Yeah, of course. And, you know, much of religion is basically founded on hearing voices, and talking to God and that sort of thing. That's a very good point. So I was hoping you could give us a brief history of schizophrenia treatment in the U.S., beginning with the moral treatment the Quakers used to the modifications made by med medical professionals. Yeah, this is really an interesting history because of no matter what therapy has been used with those we call mad and then later schizophrenia, it's always seen at the time as helpful. And that's because doctors are always going to see what they do as, as helpful. So if you go back to the colonial days and then the first years uh, of our country, uh, at that time, it was often seen as the age of reason. And the thought was that those who have lost their reason have descended to a lower level of being and, and therefore almost animal-like in kind. And so the, you'll see when the first um, hospital opened in Philadelphia, it had on the bottom floor some cells for, quote, the mad, and those cells, uh, they had straw in, you know, for the people, the bedding was straw. Often they wouldn't give them clothes because the thought was, oh, they're impervious to heat and cold. The textbooks at the time would say, oh, you need to tame these people like wild animals and whips and chains would be part of the quote medical approaches. And even on the weekend, some people, one of the things that you could do in Philadelphia at this time in the 1760s is you could go to the hospital and the, and, and look at the, the mad people in their cells, much like you would go to a zoo. Anyway, that was the conception of the mad in you know the late 1700s in this age of reason the idea was that the mad by virtue of having lost their reason in essence had lost their humanity then there's a reform and the reform that really takes over the united states is called moral therapy and its roots come from quakers in in, in york england and here's what the quakers said they had lost one of their members who had been treated in a, in, a, in, a, in a mental asylum in the, United, in, in the United Kingdom called Bedlam. She had died. And the Quaker said this, we don't know what causes madness, but we do know those who are, quote, mad are brethren, and we need to treat them as brethren, as like us. And they also saw them as, you know, children of God. And the idea was, that as children of God, that with, uh, if they're treated in this sort of uh, uh, compassionate way, many will have the capacity to regain their capacity to be in society and re regain their sanity, so to speak. So this was a big shift. So before this were conceived society, you know, in, in the United States, England and elsewhere, the matter seen as less than human, as the other. And the Quakers said, no, they're us, they're brethren. And once they made that reconception, they rejected all the harsh therapies of the 17, uh, you know, the 18th century. So in, exist, in, in, in addition to treating them with, you know, whips and stuff, uh, they might do very harsh therapies like bleeding them copiously in the 1700s. They might spin them around to make them, make them sort of sick. There was something called drowning therapy where they would hold people underwater. And, and among other things, these were meant to instill fear in people. But the Quakers said, no, let's build a, a retreat out in the countryside. Let's let these people dress like normal people. Let's hold, uh, 
have people come in and give talks, let's have dances, let them read, let's have really four meals a day, or at least an afternoon tea. And so this was a reconceptualization, and the idea was if you have a supportive environment, along with this thought that people have the capacity to recover, even the most, quote, insane at the time may get better. And in fact, that's what happened. You find that in the early 1800s, the first moral therapy asylum in the United States opens in 1812. Today it's McLean's. And then you get these others opened by Quakers in Connecticut and all. And researchers have gone back and looked at the outcomes of people so treated. And for first episode patients, something like, what was it, 70 or 80% would, would, would leave the, the, you know, the, the retreat in the course of a year. Wow. And the best long-term study we have is that two-thirds of the, say they have a cohort of 100 patients, never came back to the hospital. In other words, or the, the retreat. They were discharged, and, and, and two-thirds of that initial cohort never came back. Now, those are much better outcomes than we get today. And historians have gone back and looked at, you know, the, 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 the files that were kept describing these patients, and they clearly were really disturbed. In 1830, to, be, to go to a retreat, you had to be quite disturbed because there was more tolerance for sort of disturbing behavior. And yet what we see is, uh, you know, a, a regular capacity to recover and often then just to uh, continue to be okay in society. I mean, maybe they, many of the people would be odd, idiosyncratic, et cetera, but they function. And, and we've lost that. Then what happened? So what happened to moral therapy? Because it, the, that became the form of care in the early 1800s. And then the first wave of asylum building in the 1850s which by the way was really the, the, the first great sort of state social services project in the United States done by the states. Um, they were built as moral therapy asylums and the idea was to bring this care to the public at large. But what happened? What happened was uh, societies began dumping uh, people with neurological disorders into these asylums. So it'd be people with end-stage dementia, uh, with syphilis, who had dementia coming out of the uh, syphilis. They functioned as old age homes. And once you got, they began to be filled with these neurological cases. Of course, the neurological cases didn't get better. They were really functioning as old age homes as well. They grew tremendously in size to where instead of being small retreats for like 200 patients, they had 1,000, 2,000 people. People stopped getting better. And all of a sudden that said, see, moral therapy has failed. Now moral therapy actually hadn't failed, uh, which is the way to understand moral therapy is really a supportive environment. In the moral uh, therapy retreats, by the way, they'd be fed, they'd be, have dances, um, they'd do exercise, they'd do gardening, they'd go to walks, that sort of thing. So the idea was environment, exercise, clean air, being out in the countryside could all be very restorative. Anyway, moral therapy is seen as failed by the 1880s because of these big asylums, and that's when we get the movement to eugenics. Now, schizophrenia hasn't been identified as a, a disorder. We're still talking about, quote, the insane, the mad, that sort of thing. So we start locking up uh, the, uh, the mad. We start sterilizing them. 
Uh, this starts, we start preventing them from marrying, that sort of thing. All this happens around 1906. In 1927, I think it's 27, the U.S. Supreme Court says it's okay to forcibly sterilize the mentally ill. And that's this horrible uh, time of about a 50-year period when there is sort of a societal disparaging of, of people so, you know, described. And we get really aggressive therapies. We get something called insulin coma therapy, uh, which was known to damage the brain. We got a ele uh, repetitive electroshock therapy. We got something called metrazole uh, convulsive therapy. Metrazole was a poison, would cause you to go into uh, horrible seizures, so violent sometimes people would break bones in their back. All of these were seen as very effective, and in a way they were because they would quiet people. If you had a, a number of electroshocks, you would be quieted. If you had a lot of metrosol treatment, you would be quieted. Uh, insulin coma, you would be quieted. Um, so they were effective in quieting people. They weren't affecting and helping people get out and, and function well. So that's the 19, from really from around 1900 to 1950, and it's in this time around 19, when does the term schizophrenia actually get coined? It comes out of Germany. There's a study done by Emil Kreppelin where he looks at first episode psychotic patients coming into asylums in, 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 in Germany. And he notices two things. He notices that people who are psychotic but present with emotions, in other words, are still emotionally engaged, they may even be manic, those people actually tended to have an episode of, of psychosis and then get better. And he described those people as a manic depressive cohort, which eventually gets to be seen as our bipolar cohort. And then there was a second group. And then the second group uh, was a group that, um, as they came in, showed a lack of affect and they had trouble making willed movements. So the, yes, they were psychotic, but they're also very disengaged, sometimes not talking, sometimes catatonic. And he found that that group tended not to get better. And in, instead, they tended to descend into an early dementia. And so he named that group Dementia Precox, early dementia. And then subsequent to that time, uh, it was re-described re, um, as schizophrenia, that Dementia Precox group. Uh -huh. But as that new term takes place, like in the late 19, like 1918, something like that, you start to see a shift in who gets diagnosed with schizophrenia. It's different than the old dementia precox group. You get very many, very, you get fewer people presenting with that lack of effect, but instead that anybody who's psychosis starts being grouped in the schizophrenia um, category. And here's the, here's the confusion. I know I'm being a little confusing here. When dementia precox was initially described by Emil Kreplin, a lot of those people undoubtedly were ill with encephalitis lethargica, which is a viral disease that in fact makes people very uh, withdrawn, uh, you know, catatonic, that sort of thing. So, Dementia precox is born as a uh, diagnosis at a time that there's this undiagnosed viral, vir virus attacking people in Europe and, and other countries. Once they identify the virus, and I think that happens in 1916, they're now identified, they now start um, subtracting those encephalitis lethargica patients from the 
let's say the psychotic pool. And, and now the psychotic pool is different because it's, it shifts with the term of schizophrenia to be anybody who's psychotic. And actually at this time, the, the diagnosis of manic depressive illness is very rarely made. So that's how schizophrenia is born. It's born out of this dementia precox uh, description. And then from the 20s forward, it starts to be applied to a large group of people, including, frankly, alcoholics. Um, it's, a, it's applied to immigrants who seem to talk differently. It's certainly applied to black people with a, a greater sort of quickness. Um, and, and that's how we go forward. And, and then we can get into the modern drug age. But even in, even to, even in the 60s and 70s and 80s, it's still understood that schizophrenia is a diagnostic term that has a social element and that certain groups are much more with the same symptoms, are much more likely to be diagnosed with than other groups. So for example, they did a great study once where they just sent out symptom lists to a bunch of psychiatrists. And when they sent out these symptom lists, they just changed one element in the description. The person would be described as black male, black female, white male, or white female. And what they found is that black male were much more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia than uh, white males. And actually, the, it went like this. The group that was most likely to be diagnosed was black male, then black female, then white female, and then white male. In other words, this was a study being done when most of the psychiatrists were white males. And they were less likely to diagnose people like them as schizophrenia. And as they moved away from their cells, much more likely to diagnose these other groups as, as having schizophrenia. So that's sort of the diagnostic history. There are many groups now who are saying we should get rid of the term schizophrenia because it's applied to people with such a wide variety of symptoms, and there is no known sort of uh, discrete biology associated with it. So that's a battle actually happening even as we speak today. Right. Now in terms of treatments, the big change is 1955, we get chlorpromazine, which is uh, the brand name was Thorazine, introduced into asylum medicine. And when it's first introduced in 1955, it is likened to a chemical lobotomy. Now that's seen as a good thing because in 1949, Egas uh, a, a Portuguese neurologist who invented surgical lobotomy, had been given the Nobel Prize in medicine for having done so. So uh, the change in being with surgical lobotomy was seen as a good thing. Chlorpromazine, Thorazine was seen as causing a similar change and therefore it was seen as a, a good thing. It quieted people, it made them more manageable, that sort of thing. Yeah, and that's the first antipsychotic you see. Uh, you know, we had a first gen we had other antipsychotics like Haldol, that sort of thing. Uh, and then in the 1990s, we got a second generation of antipsychotics. These drugs like our Risperdal, Zyprexa, and here's the outcomes for people today who are medicated long term. In the first third of the 20th century. The outcomes for people diagnosed with schizophrenia were, was this. About one-third would just be better over the long term. There'd be another third that could uh, function okay 
outside the um, asylum, but still had some symptoms. And then there was a third that became sort of chronically ill. So the, the full recovery rate was about 33%. Well, it has declined since the 1970s when we've been making regular use of these drugs. And by the way, this was a paper, the, this, this decline was charted in a paper by Harvard researchers that was published in 1994. And the latest shows that a recovery rate for schizophrenia patients is down to 5%. Recovery meaning the symptoms go and they also regain their social functioning. So in this era of drugs, of antipsychotics, the conventional wisdom is they're a necessary treatment. They help people live, live out in the community. And yet recovery rates have gone down and by the way, last thing on this, in the best long-term modern study of outcomes for schizophrenia patients, and you haven't read this in your newspapers, it was done by Martin Harrell at the University of Illinois, the recovery rate was eight times higher for those schizophrenia patients who stopped taking their antipsychotic medications compared to those who regularly took them over the course of 15 to 20 years. Now, this isn't a before and after story. This is a before and during. We are still witnessing this ongoing assault. I mean, kids as young as two now are being prescribed psychotropic drugs and something like 1,100 adults and children are added to the government's disabled list for mental illness daily. Yeah, if you want to add what's happening to children, uh, this is a tragedy of unbelievable dimensions because the the medicating of kids is, is in no way a scientific thing. I mean, with psych psychiatric drugs. You, you can only understand it within the uh, context of understanding of drug companies working with uh, academic psychiatrists to, to build markets for these drugs, say to build markets for ADHD drugs, to build markets for uh, antidepressants, to build markets for antipsychotics. And when they test, so for example, the best long-term study of, of uh, ADHD drugs for kids was called the MTA study. And they found, this was done by the National Institute of Mental Health, that by the end of three years, being on an ADHD medication was a marker of deterioration, not of benefit. But people aren't told that. And, that was, and at the end of six years, the medicated group was more likely to have ADHD symptoms more likely to have problems with delinquency, uh, and more likely to have problems with a sort of function, functional impairments. But we're not told that, and the reason we're not told that is because it goes against, uh, you know, commercial forces. The use of antidepressants have never been found to be effective, even over the short term, mm -hmm. in pediatric and teenage populations, but we don't hear that. And the long-term study, the one-year-long study done by the NIMH of antipsychotics in youth found that very few could tolerate them and, and most of the kids deteriorated on them, but we don't hear that. And, and you, you know, you, you've touched on a subject. I just, it almost breaks my heart. Yeah. It breaks my heart as well. I mean, it seems like our access to medicine and psychiatric drugs and maybe a lack of compassion is fueling this epidemic of mental illness. Yeah. I mean, if, if we try to understand why so many like, people are diagnosed, so many people struggling, why our disability numbers have gone, you know, so dramatically up. So for example, in 1987, there were only 16,000 kids in the United States who were seen as disabled, this is 18 and under, or under age 18, by a mental illness. 
Today, we have about 700,000 kids seen as disabled uh, by a mental illness. So what happened? Well, we began diagnosing them and we began giving them these drugs. Same with the adult population. In 1987, we had about 1.2 million people seen as disabled by a mental disorder. Now we're around 5 million people. And so what's happening is this. We've expanded the boundaries of, of, of psychiatric diagnoses, so it's much more easy to get a diagnosis. That's one thing. Two, the American Psychiatric Association reconceptualized psychiatric problems as diseases of the brain. And when you conceptualize them like this, the problem now is within the individual. It's not within the environment. So it's not that kids are bored in school because the schools are boring. It's because some kids have ADHD. And it's not that some people are depressed because they have crappy jobs or they're living in poverty or, you know, they have poor housing. It's because they have something wrong with their chemistry. We reconceptualized all these things. And in many ways, we took normal problems and said they're diseases. And then what do we do with diseases? We give them drugs. And then we look at the science on the drugs. And what we find that, well, some people may do better over the short term, over the long term. The, the data is really clear. This form of care increases the likelihood that a person will become chronically ill and, and, and impaired. Right. It's a likelihood thing. There's a spectrum of outcomes. There's some people who do better, but that's, that's the, um, the aggregate outcomes you see. And the data shows that many patients treated for a milder problem will worsen in response to a drug, say have a manic episode after taking an antidepressant, and that can lead to a new and more severe diagnosis like bipolar. And that's what I think you've called a iatrogenic pathway, where it's a physician-caused illness, which just sounds criminal. Well, that's, a, you know, you have to understand, where did the bipolar boom come from? Because... Uh, Manic depressive illness or bipolar in in the seventies and eighties was seen as a was seen as two things as a rare disorder, and also as an episodic disorder. Most people were seen as they'd have a time of mania or a time of depression, and then they would recover. Right. But so why did we get this huge expansion in bipolar uh, diagnoses? And, and and by the way, it, this is what is driving the rise in disability. It's actually not psychotic disorders. It's it's the affective disorders. It's depression and, and bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. One, we did expand the boundaries for, for making the diagnosis. So it used to be to get diagnosed with manic depressive illness, you had to be hospitalized for both a depressive episode and a manic episode. But American psychiatry in the 80s and 90s said, oh, no, there's all, all sorts of forms of bipolar. There's milder forms. And if you're, even if you're sort of hypomanic, a little bit manic for a few days, that counts as your manic episode. And if you're depressed for a few days, that counts as your depressed episode. You don't have to be in the hospital. So one of the things we just said, we're going to expand the diagnostic categories. But the second thing is what you're talking about is this. There's a real risk that if you take an antidepressant, the antidepressant is going to stir a manic episode, and then you're going to go into the uh, bipolar category. And once you go into the bipolar category, you're often treated with a multitude of drugs, including an antipsychotic, and that becomes a real pathway to an impaired life. And I've, I've, if I can remember this, because there was a big study on this, and I 
if I've got this right, I think roughly, is it 7% of people given an antidepressant uh, suffer a manic episode within a year or something like that? Wow. Anyway, it's, it's, if you take a group of depressed patients and one group isn't medicated and you look at, at the percentage of those depressed patients that have a manic episode in the absence of medication and then you compare them to a similar group that is given uh, an antidepressant, the conversion to, to mania is at least three times higher. So that's one route. So if you use antidepressants in a very sort of big way, you're going to create an increasing number of people with bipolar. And stimulants are a problem too, especially for kids. So something like you know, 10% of, in one study, 10, 11% of kids given a stimulant who, when they were given this stimulant, showed no signs of, quote, bipolar mood cycling, uh, two years later were diagnosed with bipolar. Hmm. So that's an example of that iatrogenic pathway you're talking about. I've heard the term antidepressant-induced chronic depression and oppositional tolerance used interchangeably. Is this a big deal within research circles? It is now. It's, it's hidden from the public, but it's, it's, it's becoming so. So you spoke first of oppositional tolerance, right? And then uh, antidepressant-induced tardive dysphoria. I think that's what you, you Or you chronic depression. Using. Or chronic depression. So what is oppositional tolerance? This is something that is hidden in the literature, but really everybody should know about, the public should know about. So, and I hope I can explain it on the radio. So you take an antidepressant. Let's say it's a, it's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So that's supposed to up your serotonergic activity, right? Well, what happens is your brain being this extraordinarily flexible uh, organ with all these feedback loops, the minute you go on that drug, it says, uh-oh, something is causing you know, this increase in serotonergic activity. I have to now diminish my own serotonergic activity in order to compensate for the presence of the drug. Yeah. And in that way, I'll maintain a what would they call a homeostatic equilibrium. And, and so that's the oppositional tolerant. If a drug, say, causes an increase in serotonergic activity, what your brain is going to do, it's going to go into a sub, it's going to try to dial down its own serotonergic machinery. And it does that, for example, by putting out less serotonin, the neurons in the brain, and the receiving neurons actually diminish their density of receptors for this molecule. Now, this is a way to understand all psychiatric drugs. So let's say you go on an antipsychotic. One of the main features of an antipsychotic is it blocks dopamine receptors. So it's thwarting or hindering normal, uh, normal dopamine uh, transmission. Your brain, in response, will try to increase its dopamine production and mm. increase the density of its dopamine receptors. That's what they mean by oppositional tolerance, okay? The drugs induce physiological changes, the opposite of what is originally intended, and it does so in order to maintain what we call a homeostatic equilibrium. It's trying to maintain normal functioning of its neurotransmitter pathways. Now, you mentioned about antidepressant-induced chronic depression. So what, people, what researchers began to see, and this actually goes back to the introduction of the antidepressants in the, in the 70s, they, you, you see clinicians saying this, 
once we introduce antidepressants. Boy, it may be that my patients are, are getting better faster, but they seem to be relapsing back into depression more quickly and having more episodes. Is it causing a chronification? Are these drugs causing a chronification of the disease? Yeah. So that first happens in the 70s. You see people exploring in the 1990s. We're seeing more of this. Uh, by some estimates, something like 40% of people end up with, quote, treatment-resistant uh, depression. Well, that's actually, uh, it's not treatment-resistant. It's treatment-induced chronic depression. And you hear something like 40% of people on these drugs long-term develop uh, treatment-resistant depression. And now, if you dig into the research literature, people are going, well, what is the cause of this? And researchers are saying, we think it's drug-induced oppositional tolerance. Now, that is a biological explanation for why a drug that is meant to uh, treat depressive symptoms over the long term actually causes those symptoms to be more chronic. And so in this, story, in this discussion we're having now, Nick, this becomes the biological explanation for what I said earlier, uh, is why these drugs increase the chronicity of these disorders. And by the way, that explanation is not mine. That right. explanation is researchers looking at this increasing chronicity of outcomes and then trying to come up for a biological explanation. And the one they're coming up with is this drug-induced oppositional tolerance that seems to cause a chronification of these conditions. Okay. If the medications were working, people wouldn't be faring so poorly. It's like with the moral treatment, episodic was not turning into chronic. So unlike the failure of the war on drugs, maybe it's time for a war on drug companies and big pharma. You know who I actually blame on this? Uh, I don't really blame the drug companies. It's because the drug companies, remember, are capitalists, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're capitalists in, in, in kind. They have capitalist purposes. They have a capitalistic mission. And their, their legal mission is to to frankly maximize uh, earnings for their shareholders. And they're not, for, they're not forcing any professional to reach for a prescription pad. Exactly. And who do we as a society rely on to, to both assess the merits of the drugs and uh, to tell us what these drugs are doing and to be our guides to you know, good use of these drugs? Well, really, it, with psychiatry, that's the American Psychiatric Association. That's this institution of psychiatry. And what has happened, and this goes back to the 1980s, is that in 1980, the American Psychiatric Association published the third edition of its uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And this was the moment they, made, they reconceptualized psychiatric problems. Before that, everyone understood that life events and, and other psychological things could cause depression, anxiety, even sometimes psychosis. Yeah. What they did in 1980, they said, we're going to call these things diseases of the brain. And why did they do that? Because it helped uh, elevate the prestige of psychiatry. It made them look like, doctor, like doctors in white coats, uh, treating real illnesses. And they began uh, a marketing campaigns to tell us that was so. These are diseases. And then they began telling us, these were chemical imbalances, and they were telling us that drugs fix those chemical imbalances. Now, you have to remember, in the marketplace of the therapeutic marketplace, what do psychiatrists have that psychologists, or at least in the past, didn't have? That's prescribing privileges. 
Mm-hmm. So the, the product, psychiatry's product as a, as a guild became psychiatric drugs. So once they started seeing this uh, chronicity and these other problems, they, they were invested in telling a story of drugs that fix chemical imbalances, even though it wasn't true. Then once they began finding out, seeing these other problems, they just couldn't take it upon themselves to really confront that and, 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 and make these problems known to the public. So I really blame the medical profession in this case, the psychiatric profession, for, because that's who we look to for guidance here. We shouldn't look to guidance for drug companies. But that's who I think, and, and this is a strong word, but I honestly think the American Psychiatric Association you know, betrayed the American public by telling us about chemical imbalances when they knew it wasn't true. In 1998, for example, the American Psychiatric Association's own textbook said, the low serotonin theory of depression hasn't panned out. There's no evidence that people with depression have a problem with their serotonergic system. Now that's what they were saying to themselves. But even as they were saying that to themselves, you know what they were telling to the public on their website and stuff? Oh, depression is due to low serotonin. Take these drugs, it fixes that like uh, insulin does for diabetes. So they built this taking of antidepressants and they built this dramatic increase in our use of psychiatric drugs on a story, on a metaphor they knew was false. And I don't know how you, uh, how you describe that as other than a betrayal of that trust we put in a medical profession. That's right. And it's almost like it's been designed to be a sensitive topic to keep things from changing. Well, sure, they became invested in this, right? They became invested in this story of, of, of illnesses and the widespread use of psychiatric drugs. And they even renamed themselves. They started calling themselves psychopharmacologists. So now how do they, how do they move on? From, how do they now go to the public and say, oh, you know what? We knew that this wasn't true. We never, we, we never found evidence that depression was due to low serotonin. How can they as an institute really address that? And how is a, a, a medical guild, are they going to address the fact that it looks like these drugs induce an oppositional tolerance and there's evidence that increases the chronicity of these disorders? They, they, they just ha- they, they haven't been able to confront their own scientific truth, so to speak. Right. And that's why I always say it's better to fall on a shiny sword than a rusted one. You know, the, the longer you wait, the worse it gets. Now, I have to ask you, when we think about school shootings or acts of terror like this, what does proper inquiry look like into the gunman or the suspect? What do you want to know about their history and the meds that they're on? Wow, this is quite the topic, Nick. Uh, listen, we need to have an inquiry. That's the mm-hmm. point. We need to have a public inquiry to see these kids. Were they in under psychiatric care? Were they taking psychoactive drugs? And, and then. Um, in addition, if, if they were taking them, did they come off them abruptly? Because we do know that once you're on the drugs, to come off abruptly can cause all sorts of symptoms, withdrawal symptoms and that sort of thing. And we do, and here's why the inquiry is so needed, is because we do have evidence from research trials that antidepressants, okay, can stir homicidal impulses in some people. And I say can, can stir something called akathisia. And akathisia is also known to be a risk factor for violence. And this goes way back. You, you go back to the 1990s and people were raising this. 
And every time there would be one of these horrible school killings, there'd be sort of a call for, can we please have an inquiry into this and address this? And what happened was the powers that be always, they, 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 they managed to squash that public in inquiry saying, oh, it's coming from Scientologists or it's coming from, you know, anti-science people or flat earthers. And they managed to, to squash it. And I think the, there was a time after the, um, oh, why am I drawing? Um, the Connecticut one, um, the massacre at the school in, in Connecticut. Oh God, a little company. But there was one in like 1913 or something in, in Connecticut, a school. Kid comes in, he shoots up the school. There, at this time, Obama was president. And at this time, the idea was in order to be responsive to grassroots uh, sort of efforts, you could put up a petition on the White House and, and demand that, the, you know, that there's some sort of inquiry be, be done. So this petition was put up and, and it said, if you can get 25,000 um, signatures, we'll pay attention to it. Well, that, well, that uh, you know, petition went up, the, the signatures came pouring in and then it was taken down. And what happened? Well, all I can say is this, pharmaceutical companies give a lot of money to both sides of the aisle. They give it to Republicans and the Democrats. And that has prevented time and time again any sort of real inquiry into the possible role of psychiatric drugs in these, you know, mass shootings. And I don't want to say that's the only, you know, access to guns plays a role. There can be all sorts of things. But can we please have an inquiry into who these kids are, who these shooters are, and what involvement have they had in psychiatric care? And, and, and in what way may psychiatric drugs be playing, having an effect? That sounds like a great place to start. Now, I favor the functional medicine approach where root cause recognition is followed by root cause resolution. Is there anything similar to a functional medicine approach that challenges the current drug-based paradigm? Well, that's actually emerging, I think. There's a lot of people turning to it in, in, in psychiatry. It's sort of a grassroots um, demand uh, by people who don't really think they can be cured by a psychiatric drug, their problems can be cured. And so what you, and what you see in the functional medicine sort of approaches to psychiatric problems is this. Human beings are, you know, we're bodily presences, right? Yeah. And therefore, if, if, if you have someone that isn't doing well mentally, right? In, in emotionally, they're depressed, they're anxious, they're feeling panicky or whatever. In functional medicine, the idea is, well, how do you, you build a, a, a wellness then? What do you need to do to improve your physical health? So do you need exercise? What do you need to do to have actually a better social health? So maybe you need to get involved in social activities, that sort of thing, to, to find meaning in life. And so it might be diet, it might be exercise, it might be social functioning. So the idea with, I think in fun, and by the way, it is also look to see if there are like, uh, you know, deficiencies or some sort of neurological problem or some sort of physical problem that could be contributing to, you know, into these psychiatric difficulties. So the functional medicine approach is, at least as I understand it, is a demand by people to have sort of a holistic response to their difficulties, one that does take in the whole, the body mind together. Yeah. And, 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 and also have these sort of medical part to it, looking for other diseases, that sort of thing, or, or poor diet, 
And I, and, and it is a market and people are responding to that marketplace. And you'll see people setting up shop as taking a functional approach to psychiatric problems. Right. And then if exercise and diet don't work, then temporary low dose medication can work. Keywords being low dose and temporary. Yeah, absolutely. That's the way to think of psychiatric drugs, in my opinion. Is uh, is there a time they can be like a crutch? You know what I mean? They, as an adjunct to a to a, a broader, uh, you know, canvas of care. Right. And if you think of them that way, you know, if, if someone if, if someone is really sort of manic, if you can have a drug maybe to like quiet them down for a while, that can be great. Um, sometimes people, you know, if you're in great pain with depression, something to sort of numb yourself a little bit for a while, that can be good. Uh, yeah, if you can, if you think of the drugs in that way, as um, like an adjunct to a form of care, and you can take them over a low dose and try to minimize their long-term use, that makes perfect sense. We talked a lot today about proper prescription of drugs. Can you tell me about the myths and the real dangers of description? What does proper description look like? Well, this is, this is, this is a bit of a black hole. Uh, um, imagine this. We've been using these drugs since 1955. And so what is that? That's 65 years. And we don't have protocols, A, for taking people off these drugs, and B, we don't even know why it's so difficult. I mean, the understanding is, the understanding is this. We know that your brain changes in response to being on the drug, okay? Now you go off the drug. What speed should you take away the drug? Mm -hmm. That's the first thing we don't know. Because the, the point is, since your brain has changed to be in, you know, to compensate for the presence of the drug, if you just take the drug away, you, you know, you're going to have these withdrawal symptoms. But what we, we don't even know how long does it take the brain to renormalize itself? We don't know. That hasn't been researched. Is there some sense that if you use these drugs too long, the brain doesn't renormalize? There is that worry as well. So deprescribing is starting to become a term we're hearing. You're seeing people interested in it. And you see a lot of people saying that, you know, it has, the withdrawal has to be slow maybe even as slow as a year. But the truth of the matter is it's still something of a black hole. But uh, fortunately, at least it's now, it, it's now on the agenda for, for, for um, thinking about and learning about and developing protocols and developing places people can go to uh, help get off these drugs. I'm actually involved with something called the International Institute for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal. Uh, and it's bringing people together to try to exchange information uh, develop research into this whole question. Because this, again, we talked about betrayal. To put people on these drugs without a method for getting them off at some point is really a, um, abandoning you know, your patients because that should be a, a, an integral part of any prescribing is how to get people off safely. Right. Solutions may be found in parts of the world like Europe or Finland. Can you elaborate on their form of care for their psychotic patients that has produced, which sounds like astonishingly good long-term outcomes and their medication-free treatment giving us hope to, to maybe curb this epidemic? Yeah, there's two different things you've really talked about here. In Northern Finland, not in Finland as a whole, there was this program that got developed in the uh, early 1990s called Open Dialogue Therapy. 
And the way it worked was this, with their first episode psychotic patients. They'd come in and they wouldn't put people initially on antipsychotics. I'm talking about a newly psychotic person. The idea was that uh, they would try to um, start engaging the person in, 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 in a dialogue. And by the way, not a dialogue just with themselves, but with their sort of social environment. It might be with family, friends, etc. And in this way, the group could start identifying some of the disturbances in the spaces between people that were leading to this person to have such a, a difficult time. And they would wait. And, and by the way, they would use a benzodiazepine initially if a person needed a drug to go to sleep. Mm. And the idea was sleep can be restorative. Now, one of the things that they did in these dialogical meetings, and I sat in on them, is so a person comes in and they're coming in and psychotic. Often they're, they're fearful. They, one of the problems is they've lost the ability to be with others. They're outcasts, that sort of thing. So one of the first things they do in these dialogical meetings is give the person, a, a, help that person re recall, remember when they could be with people in the past. Mm -hmm. And they help that person remember and recall things they had done successfully. So they're starting to build a memory bank, not just of social failure or being an outcast, but of, 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 of success in the past. And then, then they build a thing where they can be with people in the, in the, in the presence they have these daily meetings if necessary in their group meetings. And then what they do is they try to build a narrative in the person's mind where they can be successful in the future. Like, what do you want to do? What sort of job do you want to have? What sort of like, how, how, you know, do you want to go to school? That sort of thing. So it's allowing them to envision themselves as something different. Now, the way they use drugs is like I said, a benzo, but they try to avoid using antipsychotics initially. And why? Because they think antipsychotics diminish the capacity of the person to be engaged in this process of recreating themselves. Now, if after, say, two, three weeks, a person isn't get, getting better, they'll use a low dose of antipsychotic. And then once, a, if a person is exposed at about six months later, they'll see who can come off the antipsychotic. Now, here's their outcomes. And this goes back to 1992 when they adopted this. At the end of five years, and this is in Northern Finland, in Western Lapland, at the end of five years, 67% of their first episode psychotic patients have never used antipsychotic medication. Another 13% have used it temporarily, and then finally 20% are on the drugs chronically. Now, what are their outcomes? At the end of five years, 80% of their patients are working or back in school and asymptomatic and off of antipsychotic drugs. We don't see, the, those are the best outcomes in the Western world. And you see it's associated with uh, trying to minimize the use of drugs and actually trying to, to uh, reduce initial exposure to the drugs. Because once you're on, it gets to be hard to come off. So I actually wrote about that in 2010 in the book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. and Open dialogue therapy is now being tried in like 12, 13 countries, including the US, but also in, in many countries in Europe. Uh, and it's, it, it conceives of the problem, by the way, is differently as well. The problem is not seen as inside the individual's head, but in the in-between spaces between the person and you know, their environment. So that's one example, I think, of um, a hopeful change. Now in Norway, and I, and I know this quite well, 
there's, there's been a number of studies now that have found that recovery rates over the long term for psychotic patients are much higher for those who are off the medication. And so the idea is maybe we should have systems of care that help, help people successfully rebuild their lives off medication. So in Norway, the consumer groups, consumer groups being people who've been in mental hospitals, been diagnosed, they began petitioning their governments, goes back to like 2012 or something. We want medication-free care, meaning maybe we need care, maybe we need to go into a hospital, but we want to be there without having been put on drugs. There was a big battle over this. They actually asked me to come over a few times to talk to groups. And finally, the health ministry said to, to their four health districts in Norway, every one of you begins to, needs to begin setting aside beds for treating people uh, you know, with psychotic disorders without medications, if that's what they wish. And now we, there's even a private hospital in Norway that that's, that's what they do. I was just there past November. And it's an amazing place. You're taking, some of the people that have gone there actually have become, been chronically ill on drugs for a long time and seen as like, uh, you'll be hopeless, have to be institutionalized your whole life. Those people are getting off the meds. Uh, they're, they're becoming asymptomatic. Uh, they're getting jobs. They're going back into the community. So you see in that initiative a very different possibility that, that societies could, could embrace. So it sounds like there is some hope. Oh, absolutely. But I don't know why I said that so, so, so quickly. Those are the exceptions to the rule, but there is some hope. Yeah. Say we all agreed to start over. We stop pretending we know the biological causes of mental disorders. We get rid of the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders. We stop assuming mental disorders are all chronic. We minimize the use of psychiatric medications. What would you add to that in remaking psychiatric care? Well, that's a pretty good agenda, actually. Uh, well, just this, this philosophy, a little bit of philosophy, and that is that we understand to struggle with your mind is to be human. In other mm -hmm. words, that's something that humans do. And it can, it can come in many, many different fashions. So let's recover our sense from the beginning that, like the Quakers had, uh, we're talking about us, about brethren. That's the first thing. Second thing is a philosophy that understands is, um, People have so often a resilience. There is this very much with all of these problems, a great chance that they can be episodic if we, if we, and not um, chronic if we do what you just said. And the third thing, and, and this is consistent with what you just said, let's not try to pretend that something's a discrete illness and we know the pathology. Let's just say we don't know. We need, we need to have this humility. This has happened. And what is the thing that we all do know? We do know that supportive environments can be so important. An environment where uh, we talked about this, good food, shelter, uh, having meat, finding a way to have meaning in life, socialization. So let's remember the healing aspects of supportive environments, and we all need that. You need it to stay well, I need it to stay well. You, you, it's good to have meaning in life. It's good to have a place in life. It's good to have someone to love, someone and someone, someone that loves you. So let's remember what all of us need, what sort of environment to be well, and, and you know, approach it that way—a philosophy of life that's humble, 
that, that, that calls upon what we do know about human beings and is optimistic. And the optimism is with the proper support, so many people can descend into very difficult times and with time come out of it and resume a, a, a robust life. So that's what I'd like to re replace it. Replace the disease model with all the chronicity and all the pessimism with this optimistic model of humility. And within that model, as you said, Nick, earlier, there can be a place for the drugs. And the place for the drugs is figure out for whom and for how long and low doses, try to minimize long-term use. I think you actually want to try to minimize initial exposure as well. Um, but that's what we need. That's right. So what does the Hippocratic Oath mean to you? <laughs> this, is, this is really important. We say the Hippocratic Oath means do no harm, right? Don't make your patients worse. That's what we think it means. But actually, uh, Hippocrates was getting at something more subtle. So he's saying this, there's also often in nature a natural capacity to recover. So for example, let's take an illness. And the natural recovery rate is this. 50% with that illness, you do nothing. Uh, it passes, they're better, they're cured. 30% stay the same. And 20% with this disease. This is the natural spectrum of outcomes. 20% worsen, okay? Now, what he's saying, in order to do no harm, your aggregate income, your aggregate outcomes have to be better than that. So if, if your aggregate outcomes with your medical care suddenly become, oh, 25% are cured, 50% stay the same, and 25% get worse, you've actually worsened things. You've done harm because your aggregate outcomes, you've lowered that sort of recovery rate. And so in order to do no harm, you have to first understand what is the natural, the, capacity, the natural capacity to recover from whatever this illness is? And in psychiatry, the truth is natural recovery rates are quite high. And that's why a disease model and a chronic use model is almost bound to fail because actually outcomes in nature are quite good. And so even if you have drugs where, say, 50% of the people are doing well, well, if in nature, 80% are doing well, you've actually still been doing harm. So that's Hippocrates. Right. In order to do no harm, your medical intervention actually has to improve on natural outcomes. And it's quite clear that psychiatric drugs don't meet that standard. Well put. So understand what is in our nature as humans and also understand the impact that going outdoors in nature can have on us. Absolutely. Two questions that I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. If you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? <laughs> someone you don't know. Uh, a man named Scipio Africanus Jones. He's someone I wrote about in a book called On the Laps of Gods. He was born into slavery in uh, 1863, 64. Um, his father, his biological fa father was in fact a slave owner in Arkansas. And then, of course, we get the Civil War, uh, the slaves are freed, and then Scipio learns to read because of uh, the Reconstruction era, the schools start up for, for, for you know, for the freedmen. In the 19, 1880s, he applies to go to law school. Of course, they said, no way. And, but instead, he goes to three white lawyers. He asks them, can he study under them? They say, yes. He becomes uh, one of the first uh, African-American attorneys in Arkansas. 
starting in the 1890s, he's really the first great civil rights attorney, you know, at a state level, you know, in the United States, one of the first. He's fighting uh, Jim Crow laws, he's fighting peonage laws, um, and a lot of different, you know, uh, racist and, and segregational type laws. Then in 1919 comes his big case. There's a racial massacre of sharecroppers in, in Phillips County, Arkansas. There's maybe 100, 150 uh, blacks killed. Uh, in addition, all the sharecroppers who had been talking about organizing a union to sue the plantation owners to get a fair share of the crop, they're rounded up, they're taken to prison. The leaders of the uh, union are quickly um, convicted of conspiracy to commit murder, sentenced to die in the electric chair. Scipio now uh, takes up their appeal. He fights and he fights and he fights, and he eventually goes to the Supreme Court with the case. He eventually wins, and it's a habeas corpus case, and what, the, and what he gets the Supreme Court to decide is that um, because the trials, it, it's not that the trials, the trials were a joke, but basically he said, listen, this was like a mob taking place. The mob took over the courtroom. And because of that, uh, the state lost jurisdiction over these people and therefore they should be free. Now, this is the first time that uh, the uh, Supreme Court ruled in essence that if people did not get a fair trial at the state level, the jurisdiction could be yanked from, from, from the state. And this becomes the foundation for the civil rights movement and for actually federal guarantee of the, of the, the protections in the Bill of Rights. And he continues doing this for the rest of his life. But that case called Moore versus Dempsey changed uh, constitutional law. And if you really go into it, it's seen as the foundation of the civil rights movement. Now, here's what's so amazing about Scipio. He had to worry about his life when he was fighting this, there were threats against him. But he was such, he was a man, as he fought this battle, he was able to call on sort of the better cells of the white power structure. And, and I'll give you an example of this. When he was going back to Helena from, from Little Rock in order to argue a case, it was basically the thought was, you're gonna get killed if you come to Helena to argue on behalf of these sharecroppers. So what did he do? He went to the sheriff, a sheriff that had been part of the group that in fact had been involved in the massacre. And he said, your job is to protect me so these court proceedings can, can go on. And the sheriff agreed. You're right, you know what, you're right, that's my job. And they protected him while he was in Helena. And when, he, when it was time for his funeral, in a black church in 1941. Uh, this is the most amazing story. So here is this man who fought the white power structure his whole life, fought segregation, fought and fought against um, you know, efforts to suppress the black vote. What happened? There were so many white people in Little Rock that wanted to sort of sort of give tribute to them. In the church, they divided the church into two. One half was for the whites, one half was for the blacks. But the point is, this man who spent his life fighting against an unjust system, fighting against Jim Crow, fighting against uh, you know, criminal prosecutions that were a joke, 
he somehow managed to to call upon whites to think about their better selves. So anyway, I would like to sit down and, 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 and talk to him and just be in his presence and trying to understand how did he do this? How did he have the, um, what's the word for it? The grace and the strength to cross racial boundaries at a time when they were so uh, bitterly divided and even as he was fighting against, you know, on the behalf of the disenfranchised, against the power structure, he managed to do it successfully. So he's an unsung hero, and, and I would love to spend an afternoon with him. I wrote a book called On the Laps of God, so in a way I spent a year with him, and uh, it was a memorable experience. Sounds fascinating. I'm going to have to read that book. So last question, what are your daily non-negotiables, things that no matter what will always be done? Well, you know, my first response is I'll always have a glass of red wine. <laughs> and that actually is my non-negotiable. Uh, what I was thinking about it a bit more is um, it's not what's done. It's, 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 I hope I approach each day where I try to remember as, a, as I move about the world to be kind. And I say that because... Uh, I could always, growing up, be quick to anger, <laughs> quick to have a temper. And I think if you move about the world and, and throughout the day of trying to be thoughtful towards others and kind towards others, uh, your own life is much more pleasant. <laughs> and you have, you have many, many moments during the day where you just feel good, a little interaction with somebody. So... My non-negotiable is try to get up in the morning and, and try to remind myself of that. I love that. I really admire the work you're doing, Robert. How can people contribute to this cause? One is to educate themselves in this, in this sort of counter-narrative, learn about it, uh, become well-versed in it. So if you go to madinamerica.com, our website, every day you'll, you'll read about science that supports the counter-narrative. We have a different science re uh, review five days a week. You'll hear people telling their personal stories. You'll have bloggers talking about, and we have bloggers from all over the world, really, writing about alternatives, different approaches. Today, for example, we have a long piece on, on how to replace the DSM with another sort of way of conceptualizing psychiatric problems. So add your voice to that uh, effort to create a, 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 new, a new narrative, a more humanistic narrative, a more optimistic narrative. And you can do that by becoming informed. If you have a personal story, you know, tell it. And if you're, you know, also engaged in this part of the world, think about alternatives. Think about creating alternatives for kids. And, and real quickly, I'll give you an example. I know a famous, I know there's a guy named Peter Mayfield. We, we, we profiled him recently. He was one of the world's great, best rock climbers, okay? Fantastic rock climber. You know what he did? He basically set up an outdoor program for a very troubled kid in California. And among other things, he teaches them to, to rock climb. And so what happens when they rock climb? Well, they start trusting each other. They confront their fears. And he wasn't a psychiatrist. He wasn't a psychologist. He said, I'm going to do something for these kids that are depressed and anxious. And he created this outdoor rock climbing program. And by the way, one of the things is that's so great about this the kids, 
have to go out to like the mountain areas to rock climb. So they spend an hour with some mentor in the car, you know, a few of them. So now they have another sort of adult presence that they can talk to, can, you know, form bonds with. So that's an example of how you can um, do something to, 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 you know, create better spaces for kids. So everyone should go check out maddenamerica.com. Where else should people go if they want to learn more about you and keep up with what you're doing? Well, that's the best place. But, you know, if, if you do want to learn more about this, it's good to read the book, Madden America. Good to read uh, Anatomy of an Epidemic. Um, on Madden America, you can also find ac access to a lot of other people who've written very good critical books. Um, I, you can also find out a little bit about my other books by going to robertwhitakerbooks.com. You'll find... Uh, so I, I mentioned that book on the laps of gods. You'll find source documents there about that uh, court case and that massacre. Uh, I have another book called Mapmaker's Wife, which is about a scientific expedition in the 18th century. So you can find more about writing and source documents for the books on robertwhitakerbooks.com. All right, Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This was very insightful. And Nick, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.